0: second reading is from the book of Ruth, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Melon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them and they lift up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see? I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi?" She said to them, "'Do not call me Naomi. "'Call me Mara, "'for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. "'I went away full, "'and the Lord has brought me back empty. "'Why call me Naomi, "'even when the Lord has testified against me, "'and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me?' "'So Naomi returned, And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Dear God, we do come and are grateful for being invited into Advent, this first Sunday of Advent, for what it means in the life of the church around the world, we join literally billions of people who step into this season with our eyes straining on the horizon to see you come. And you know the particular reasons why all of us this morning might be straining those eyes to places in our lives where we particularly need you to break in. And so we offer uh, our lives, but also our brothers and sisters, those on our right and our left, sitting in front of us, behind us. We come together and just lift one another to you and say, Lord, um, have your way with us. Break in, advent into our lives and begin this month through our worship together and through this text in Ruth this morning as we look at it. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Well, my name is Dean Miller, if you don't know me, and I'm delighted to be jumping into this book Ruth, if you have a Bible, you might want to open it up to Ruth 1, which was just read. As you do that, think about, um, my guess is many of you have a favorite Christmas movie or story, right? One of the things that happens over the last few days, but particularly as we head in the next few weeks, is lots of channels begin to show favorite movies, right? Like, so there's uh, Elf. Any big Elf fans? That's a favorite in our house. Okay, kind of a standard. Nutcracker, different forms of the Nutcracker or the Christmas story. Right? When I was a kid, it was the Rudolph story with the little figurines kind of skating across as the snowman voiced by Burl Ives. Most of you don't know who Burl Ives is, but anyway, he would voice the snowman and tell the Rudolph story. All these great stories that sort of mark the time. Um, In our area, right, downtown, Kennedy Center or other places often show live productions. Anybody have a live production in their future in the next few weeks? Maybe again, probably Christmas Carol. Downtown is pretty great, right? And there's something about live. Right? There's something striking about live theater. Um, when I lived in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, for several years I got season's tickets to, to the live theater at the University of North Carolina. They would bring in alums from Carolina and do all these shows, and it, there was something about seeing something live where the person was right there. Sometimes they would enter into the action from behind you and suddenly people, actors would be walking right next to you. It's a bit startling, right? Because there's something about live plays that invites you in in a really imposing, powerful, compelling way. And a, and a good play, a good movie, a good story, both tells a particular story and then invites us into the realization, oh, that this particular story actually speaks to broader humanity, right? Like not just that particular set of people, but invites us all in, right? There's things about Elf, even Elf that invite us all into that story. Whether you drink the world's greatest coffee or not, this morning on your way here, for those of you who are Elf fans, that story has themes about fathers and sons and love and Christmas, right? All these different things that we get invited into. And this Advent, we're looking at a, a story, the book of Ruth, that's a particular story, but also has all these lovely gospel themes, good news themes for you and me and the entire world. And it does that by asking and inviting us to ask and answer questions that we all ask, not just the characters in Ruth. Questions like, is there a God? Is there a a bigger story than what I see or perceive, or is the only story really going on is what's readily apparent only to me? If there's a God, what kind of God is this God? Is he a trustworthy God? If if he's trustworthy, what kind of story does he invite me into? If he's saying, follow him, what kind of story can I expect? What might it look like? In that story, what matters about being a man or a woman? What does he characterize men and women as real adults, healthy men and healthy women? What does that look like? And in turn, what do unhealthy men and women look like? Who matters to this God? Is it one particular gender or ethnicity or time in history? Are these, is this God, does he have arms big enough for people other than just one of those, one ethnicity, one nation? Is it possible with this God for me to do something so wrong that he will turn his back on me forever? Is this God's story boring, unappealing, unattractive? something I wouldn't be brave enough to take into the public square and say, look, this is stunning. Well, again, we, for the next four weeks, are stepping into the book of Ruth to ask and answer these questions. It really is a breathtaking work of art. I mentioned last week, I love this story. This is my favorite book of the Bible. And I said last week, if you come and you are bored, I will buy you a Starbucks card. I I say that again. I will do that. You'll have to sit across from me while I hand it to you. But if you're bored over the next four weeks, it's not because of Ruth. It's because of me and because of Johnny. And I have faith in Johnny. Let me just be clear. This is a true story crafted for you and me. Many of you are familiar with a writer named Pat Conroy who had a lot of best-selling books in the 80s and 90s like The Great Santini, The Lord's of Discipline. These were often made into movies. Conroy says about Ruth, in terms of narrative, art, and imagery, the story of Ruth is unsurpassed in the Bible. Art and imagery, unsurpassed. There's no other story of such brevity that contains such a literary texture. So I'm inviting you to jump into this with me and us the next few weeks. And I'd invite you, if you're a guest here, we're so glad you're here. Stay with us for these four Sundays. This is a community that seeks to love each other, but also to love our neighborhoods. And we're so glad you're here to hear the good news that we love. And if you're here, then you think of someone this morning, you think, I would love for them to hear this story the next few weeks. There's still time. Remember, the the whole vision of this church is to be an externally focused good news family for our neighborhood, for Vienna and Reston and Herndon. So I'd encourage you again to think about, is there someone who I might wanna invite to be a part of this the next few weeks? This morning, we're gonna take sort of a see the forest look at a bit of the book and a look at chapter one. Chapter one is inviting us into some of these particular questions and then I'll leave you with three particular ways, sort of trees from the forest, ways that Ruth can guide our advent together. So first, Ruth, think of Ruth as a four-act play this is really how you should hear it. In the days of the judges, there was a man who lived in Bethlehem and there was a famine. Each of the chapters, you should imagine the curtains are closed and they open. I've taught this for over 20 years. I've never had curtains. It's so exciting. I, li- I had to do that. Really, I had to do that. But you should imagine the curtains are closed at the beginning of every chapter. Picture you were at a theater hearing a play. The curtains were closed and the narrator comes on. This is what it would sound like. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn. It's the perfect narrator sentence to invite you into play. This is what's happening. Here's the context. Look at the last verse of chapter one. It ends this way. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. It's a perfect sentence to set you out into intermission because it summarizes the first act and it leaves you with all these questions. This is a play. The curtains will open, the curtains will close with every chapter. Fully 55 of the 85 verses are dialogue. You go to see a play, you see people dialogue, right? Back and forth, back and forth, two thirds. There are super strong characters in the play. And I'd encourage you today, maybe over lunch or in a small group this week, cast the play. You're the casting director. You've read this, heard it, Mary, and read it. You can pick from anybody. Who do you make? Naomi and Ruth and Orpah and the narrator. Those are sort of your main characters. There's the chorus of women from Bethlehem the, uh, that come on at the end. They'd kind of come on from the wing over here. There's three men who start the play. The play looks like it's gonna be about these three men and they're off scene pretty fast, literally off scene pretty fast. Cast it, talk about it as a family today. This is who I would cast in this role. Let's all assume that Meryl Streep would be our first go-to to Naomi and then find somebody else, Let's assume that's one A. And then let's get creative on two A, right? It's a play. And act one is introducing us to characters and situation in the context. And it will build on itself act by act and chapter by chapter. Okay, second then, in these first five verses, we actually have a complete unit, a complete story, but not God's full story. One of the things we'll see in the book is there are actually several places you could end the book. And you could end the book at this place. The time when the judges ruled, this man and his son and his wife left, he died, they died, they had married mobile wives, They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her sons and her husband. That unit would have made some sense to the original listeners, but it would have alarmed them from jump. The first clause would have got their attention, and it would have basically presented like a parable of warning. If the only part of Ruth we had was verses one through five, this would be a parable of warning about what it meant to disobey God and it would answer some of the questions we have about God in a way that wouldn't tell the full gospel story. Let's look at it a little more together. What do you know about the days when the judges ruled? Time of great obedience and joy for Israel or time of disobedience? Disobedience. The times of obedience are the exceptions. Typically, it was here and then here. A little bit of Samson, he's a little problematic. A little bit of Gideon, oh, a little problematic. On and on. So if I'm the original listener and I hear somebody say, in the days when the judges ruled, I go, ooh, this might not go great. Then I hear there's a famine in the land. What do we know from the Pentateuch about the land? It's real important, and God promises if we come to this promised land and we obey God, what's the land gonna do? It's gonna be full of milk and honey, and all the things in between. But if we disobey, what's going to happen to the land? There's going to be famine. So it's judges and there's famine. Oh, dang. It's not a great start. Then this man in the famine, what does he decide to do? You're gonna stay in Jerusalem, or in Israel. He's gonna leave. What town's he gonna to leave? Bethlehem. Anybody know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. Oh shoot! In Judges, during a famine, by all means, don't leave the house of bread. Trust God's Hesed. We're gonna come back to that. But those of us who are part of Genesis, remember the two themes of what God gave to the people: seed and land. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are screaming at Elimelech, hey, do not leave the land. It's not going to go great. He leaves the land and he goes to Moab. Oh, shoot, it just got worse. Because Israel is not to associate with Moab. Moab is the descendants of Lot and the children of Lot and his daughters-in-law. They've been warned for decades. Do not associate with Moab. To seek refuge in Moab is both shameful and dangerous, one commentator says. And marriage to the people of the land, to Canaanites, is strictly forbidden. Children from such a marriage were prohibited from entering the assembly of the Lord until the 10th generation. So if you married a Moabite woman, let's say a generation is 20 years, it'll go low. Your kids weren't allowed to enter the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle of Israel for 200 years. Don't leave Bethlehem. Don't, by all means, go to Moab. And oh, heavens to Betsy, don't marry Moabite women. So if you're listening to this and it ends at verse 5, it's again a complete unit. But praise the Lord and hallelujah, that's not the whole book of Ruth. I do think it would be a lovely primer Unlike Pharisee training, if you fast forward to the New Testament. Because what it's saying is God has given us his best way to obey. If you disobey, there will be consequences and people will die. It's the first part of Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Here it is. It's how you keep your kids' attention in Israel to wake them up. If you disobey, let me tell you about Elimelech. So, a first unit, a finish, but thankfully we get verses 6 and 7 and 8. Third, the narrative in this chapter especially is marked by what's often called binary oppositions. These things that shed light on each other, sort of like tents of a volleyball net, poles of a volleyball net, because they are so opposite, they pull on each other. Chapter 1 begins with a famine, but it ends with a barley harvest. Naomi says she went away full, but she returns empty the chapter starts with life everybody's alive but it ends there's been a lot of death Naomi means pleasant but Mara means bitter and underlying all this are the choices and consequences about disobedience and obedience but there's these polarizing binary oppositions that we'll see come up again and again in the text Because of them, it's easier to understand. You will understand the difficulty of famine if you've been a part of a harvest. You'll appreciate fullness more if you have been empty. Then the entire narrative, the entire book, and even this chapter is driven by questions about this lovely word we've looked at in Genesis, hesed. Loyal, loving kindness, particularly attributed to God. What does it look like to demonstrate loyal, loving kindness? Who will practice it. It's sort of the overarching question, even here in Act 1. That's the undercurrent of the first few verses. Well, will be God be faithful to Israel even in famine? What we would want Elimelech to do if he came and asked us, hey, I'm, I'm worried about the famine. I'm worried it won't be able to provide for my family. I'm thinking of leaving and going to Moab. That question would be begging God's hesed. We would say, no, trust God's hesed. It's going to be okay. There are two specific people mentioned who live out Hesed in chapter one. It's Orpah and Ruth, the Moabite women. Orpah, even though she goes back, is first described as someone practicing Hesed because she did pack up. She did begin the journey with Naomi, and she didn't turn back until Naomi basically said, Your future is better if you go back than with me. Ruth, of course, then demonstrates it even more greatly by staying with Naomi. And again, the hungering question that echoes from Naomi's very difficult phrases at the end of the book are that God must have pulled Hesed back from her. And they leave us at intermission as the curtain closes with, well, is that the kind of God we are worshiping or serving? Is that what God does? Because the first three chapters all end with that sort of narrative tension and hanging questions. Think for a second. Many of us have read, how many of you have read the whole book of Ruth before? So what we're gonna ask you to do is pretend you only have the chapters we cover. Pretend you only have chapter one. What questions might you have at the end of chapter one for Naomi and Ruth and God? How will they feed themselves? Where will they live? When is barley season? Just factually, it's in April. Lasts about three months, about 90 days, so it's basically through summer, in midsummer. Has God really removed his hand from Naomi? And again, more deeply, would he ever remove it from me? So, so much going on here in this first act, introducing all these things, raising our curiosity, inviting us in. Again, I wanna give three specific things, three specific ways Ruth can help us as a part of Advent. First, Ruth is a guide for Advent because it's a book about waiting, and it's a book about unmet longing, and a book about being in a hard place and tempted to look somewhere other than God for hope. Advent is a season of waiting. We wait for the good news of Jesus come in the flesh. We wait and we sing, And we pray, oh, come, Emmanuel, now, come soon, come please. And we pray that sometimes in desperation and agony. Because sometimes, like with Naomi, it seems like maybe God doesn't care or doesn't hear us or is too busy. Sometimes we went away full and returned empty. Sometimes we might not have a perspective or the grace to see the things God has done, like provide roots in our life. Sometimes we cry out, oh, come Emmanuel, because we have stories and we know he's come before and we trust him to do it again. And in that, we can empathize this year with Naomi as we come to the end of chapter one because she is waiting honestly, openly. Staging this as a play, Naomi would be a great character because she's got so much power. She's not, there's no, no filtering going on as Naomi returns to her friends. And if we're honest, we can empathize with her. And if we're real honest, we could probably empathize with Elimelech. Because he really was facing a famine. It wasn't pretend. He wasn't imagining that there wasn't food for his family. He was really faced with trusting in God in a dire place. A place where it seemed like God wasn't showing up. A place many of you face or maybe in the middle of. And like Elimelech, you and I during Advent, might need to own, I am tempted in this famine to that Moab because that place, that place that I know is dangerous or I've been warned about or is not great for me or is devastating for me looks better than waiting in Bethlehem, the house of bread for God to provide. Your Moabs might be escape or distraction or passivity. It might be running from a hard relationship, a hard marriage, a hard parenting situation. It might be tempted to look for companionship in a place that's not best. Or you're scared about your finances and tempted to do something sketchy. And if we look at this play as not just a story about them, but also inviting us into the greater story, we can go, oh, I get why Melimelech might have considered Moab. And I can own before God that place in the famine where I'm tempted. Secondly, Ruth is a guide for Advent because of the relationship between Naomi and the narrator. This is one of the most beautiful parts of this whole book. Let's say Naomi is your friend and she she came back to Vienna after fleeing in a hard time, and she came back without the husband that you knew and the sons that you'd seen her leave with, and it's been over 10 years. She looks different, she's worn, she's tired, she is bitter, and she comes to your house and she says in your living room what she says at the end of chapter one. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? God has done all this to me. God has done all this to me. God put me in this job. God gave me COVID. God took away school. God made me be in this hard marriage. God, God, God has forgotten me. Now in this very honest statement, and I'm sure Naomi prayed these things to God too. I don't think she was just bitter horizontally. I'm sure she was bitter vertically because there's not much filter in Naomi. Is Naomi theologically correct about God and what she's saying and what we believe about God in the gospel story? No, Is Naomi personally self-aware? No. do you see her taking responsibility for herself and their choices? They did leave. Israel. they left the land. It was really clear in Israel, don't do this. Is Naomi communally sensitive? No, because Ruth is right there when she's telling you in her your living room. God brought me back empty. I got nothing. No, nothing is here now. If you are Ruth, wouldn't you be like, hey, what is going on? Because Ruth going with Naomi is basically saying, I will die with you. I will leave behind my family. I'm cutting off every thread to Moab. I'm investing in your life and your God. Tell me, what has she seen of Yahweh at this point? Is Yahweh flourishing Naomi in her life or is Yahweh testing Naomi and inviting her back to Israel? This is an amazing statement. Your people be my people, okay. And your God, my God. Is Naomi sensitive to Ruth being in the room? No. Is Naomi right about who God is and what story she's in? No. Her feelings are still the primary lens of understanding for what's going in her world. Her feelings, which are true, I feel this way and those feelings must be both true and the truth. Naomi has had a terrible experience. Traumatized. Her her husband died. Her sons died. There are no grandchildren. There's no financial future on the horizon that is easy or certain. These are true and need to be honored and understood. But it isn't the whole story. And what's beautiful is the narrator does not correct her. The narrator does not put a little sentence in there that says, you know, Naomi was wrong about Yahweh. No, what he does is remain present to her in the story and invites us along the way. We're gonna be with Naomi as she's bitter. We're gonna be with her and watch what God does. We're gonna honor what she's feeling, but we're gonna believe on her behalf that there is something bigger and better that God is doing. We're gonna believe God's story is the dominant story, not what she's feeling. And isn't this an instructive way for how we can live in the world? Some of us, this is a good example of how to be with God, to be this honest and vulnerable. Lord, I feel like I have gone away full and I've come back empty. How many of us have, have ever been that honest with God? Because Naomi would be a primer. On how to do that. Because what we see is God doesn't strike her down with lightning. And that sentence is in your Bible. Because God wanted it in there. What we believe is. Naomi at this point doesn't remember what story we're in. Which is what Johnny talked about at the beginning of the service with Advent. Reminds us what story we're in. And so we're going to believe on her behalf. And we might need to believe on your behalf too. And some of us, it might be helpful in how to be present to someone who is struggling this way because I bet we all have friends who might be struggling this way. And they don't need us to correct their theology. They do need us to be present to them like the narrators present to Naomi here and say, I will be with you and I will love you and I'll believe the bigger story for you. You don't even have to do it. I'll do it for you. I'll hold fast to God and then hold fast to you if you can't hold fast to God. We're okay. We're okay. Because wait till you see what happens to Naomi. Again, I dare you. I double dog dare you to stay till chapter four. Come back from intermission. Third thing. Third way Ruth is a guide for Advent is because of the light word of Ruth one. Light is a German word meaning the key word. And almost every chapter in Ruth has a key word. Often it's a word that's repeated over and over and over. I won't tell you what chapter two is, but we've covered it recently. That's a clue. What do you think the key word for Ruth one is? Famine, disobedience, bitterness. How about return? Return. The, the key word of Ruth 1 is return. I'm going to start crying. This is so good. How many times do you think that phrase is used in chapter 1? Five times? Seven times? Eleven times. That's once every two verses. That's stunning storytelling. It's Ruth one, the first five verses could not have been worse. One of the narrators has this great phrase that in the first chapter, the geography is a character. And the way you have to understand that is this. So in the time when the judges ruled, that's if this is center of Yahweh, this, in the time the judges ruled it's already bad. There's a famine in the land. Okay, then I leave the famine, Bethlehem, and I go to Moab. Then I die. Then my sons marry Moabite women. I might as well be out of the high school in the, in the understanding of an Israelite and how far from God I could be. And, and with that, the central word, the central theme of this first chapter is return. Return, return. That's who this God is telling you his story is because the hero of Ruth is gonna be God and what this God wants you to take away and I want you to take away in the first chapter in this first week is the dominant theme is return, return, return there is nowhere you can go there is nowhere you can go there is nowhere you can go That is too far from God's love for you. This is a beautiful parallel, this whole chapter and book, to the prodigal son. Because the prodigal son has places where the story can end. And if you were going to mirror them together, you would say, the Pharisees love the prodigal son right up to when the son is with the pigs. Because he would say, if you disobey, you'll end up with pigs. And they would also say, if you disobey and go to Moab, you'll die. But Jesus tells a story and the narrator Ruth tells a story about returning. The reason you need to know how far away it is, that binary opposition, is just so you know it's not too far. So you might be here and still figuring out who Jesus is. What, what this room would tell you is we are a group of people who have returned to the God who invited us to return. And it's fabulous. And we'd love you to know more about it and to join us. And you might be here this morning thinking, Dean, if you knew what I'd done or what I struggled with, you would know that's like Moab Moab, a couple miles beyond. And that's absolutely not what the story is telling you. There is no place worse than going to Moab and getting married 10 generations of your kids can't come into the tabernacle.
0: Return, return, return. Let's pray.
1: Dear God, again, I am grateful for this book and its beauty and its message. It is not just artful, but it is good news. And I pray especially no one would leave this room this morning thinking they're too far from you. That you would use the 11 times you beat this drum in this chapter to break down any wall between them and you this morning. Give us courage in you and this story as we go through the week that we might sing and dance and celebrate belonging to a God who invites us into this sort of good news. In your holy name, amen. amen.
0: Ye beneath life's crust